Welcome to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm your host, Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis is all about our city as an urban place, including its neighborhoods, buildings, pathways, and parks, as well as the people who shape it. Join us each week as community leaders and commentators talk with me about our shared built environment. Support for WYXR comes from Focal Point. Located in Crosstown Concourse, Focal Point is a Southern College of Optometry clinical facility that offers fittings with designer eyewear and eco-friendly frames. Learn more at focalpointcrosstown.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Memphis Metropolis and WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Emily Trenum, the Memphis Metropolis host. And this week, my guest is Andre Jones with Jones Urban Development. And we're going to be talking about, you know, specifically about a, a project that Andre's company has done in the uptown neighborhood called Malone Park Commons, but also just generally about the development of small homes some of the challenges, but why it's good for the community. So, Andre, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Emily. I appreciate you. So, tell me a little bit about Jones Urban Development, the company. I think you're in business with your brother, and how long you've been around, and what you what your specialty is, and just generally give me the elevator speech about who you are and, and your business. Okay, my brother Curtis Jones um, is my partner, and we've been in business about 24 years now. Uh, my dad uh, was a brick mason, and my brother worked for him for many years, and they tried to get me to do it, and I ran away. Um, but eventually, I came back to construction. My brother and I started building single family homes, like I said, about 24 years ago. And we started in the suburbs and, you know, realized that. You know, that just wasn't for us. Um, and we had an opportunity to work in Uptown uh, with the Bells Partnership, building single family homes in Uptown. So we've built in Uptown, we, we built in South City, and we recently began focusing more on uh, smaller homes, especially dwelling units and the missing little housing. And so that's our focus now. Okay, so are, are you originally from Memphis? I am. And what neighborhood did you grow up in? Uh, we grew up in South Memphis, so not far from Hamilton High School. I attended Hamilton. We all attended Hamilton. Okay. I always like to ask people. I'm not very interested in neighborhoods, and I always like to ask people where they, you know, where they grew up. So I'm not. I'm from Connecticut. So, um, but. Um, yeah, it's always very, very cool to hear where people are from. So you, so so I didn't. I guess I I didn't know that much about the history. So you actually developed some of the homes that are in the in that you know part of that HUD funded well, yeah, HUD partner the Bell's Turley partnership that that led to the redev the the initial redevelopment of the uptown neighborhood. Yes, we were one of the three market builders that uh, they selected to build new homes in Uptown. Okay, that's and great. We also built, and we also built, uh, as part of the Hope Six program for for Legends Park, they had an off-site development over in South City. 
um, McKinley Park. And so we built homes for that Hope Six project as well. Yeah, those are beautiful developments. I haven't had Alex Turley on the program yet, but we've been talking about him coming on. So hopefully he'll be a guest sometime soon because he's just very interesting, along with his uncle Henry, of course. But Alex interesting is interesting in and, in and of himself, and I, I'm excited to have him on. So before we talk about um, Malone Park Commons, um, how did you get interested in how and why did you get interested in developing smaller homes? Well, around 2008, we started building. So my family has lived in Uptown since about 2007. So we built a, we built a home in Uptown in 2008. And the truth is, we um, so we had a daughter at a time at that time. Uh, one child. And then we began uh, thinking about having a second child. Um, So when our son came along, I started thinking, you know, we've got our house was, I don't know, 2,100 square feet at the time. And I started thinking we really could, you know, we really should consider how we should cut our expenses here. So I began to start to look at ways to do that. And one of the ways to do that was, you know, smaller housing, you know, something with a smaller mortgage, it should have a lower utility bill, you know, things like that. So I got really interested in it. And I started and I ran across the Katrina Cottage movement, yep. which was um, these architects got together. They had a charrette to kind of discuss what types of structures they could build to replace the FEMA trailers that they were using for um, um, after Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. And so they had some really great ideas from the, the uh, Katrina Cottage charrette. So I started looking at those and I was really interested. And so um, that's kind of where my interest began. You know, well, the you've got to be the, o- the only person in the world who said, I'm having another child. We need a smaller house. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I was just, we, it, sometimes, you know, you just look at your, you know, you, you look at things and you say, do we really need what we have? You know, we could take that money and do other things with it, you know? So that was the thought process. Oh, it's sure. It makes perfect sense. It's just, it's just counterintuitive to how, how uh, the American family thinks, I think. So that's really interesting. So was the first small, smaller home you built for your family? Yeah. So the first um, small, and it's not tiny by any means. So, uh, we built a an 1,100 square foot house, but we also built a um, built a 300 square foot accessory dwelling unit with it to give okay. us. Some okay, okay, don't make me ring my bell. <laughs> okay, so it's a uh, a backyard. So we built a so we built the main house, which is 1,100 square feet, and then. Um, it was right after the Unified Development Code was uh, was uh, implemented by city and county, and it allowed what's called accessory dwelling units or backyard houses or backyard apartments to be built on properties of a certain square footage, on land of a certain square footage. So we built the very first um, accessory dwelling unit on our property, which was a, which is a single story, I'm sorry, a single car garage with a 300 square foot apartment above it. 
So for people who don't know, just to digress for a second, um, you know, and, we, and I talked about this on the show before, you know, Memphis has a has a, um, a set of really, you know, planning and zoning guidelines called the Unified Development Code that were updated several years ago. And before that, um, it wasn't really legal. I mean, a lot of, you know, old older houses in Midtown had back houses, but for a long time, it just wasn't legal to build, um, you know, back houses or small units like this. And so, just let people know that's what you're talking about, that that really opened up the ability for people. So besides back houses, what are some other, what are, are there other kinds of accessory dwelling units? So mainly they're, uh, so they have what they call, they, they've given them all sorts of names, granny flats, backyard cottages. Um, but really they are detached dwelling units that you can have on the same property. Um, so we've built um, we've built a detached guest cottage on one of the last homes that we sold. Um, of course, we have the studio that's above the garage, which you know they used to call them carriage houses, right? Uh, you know, years ago. So you know there are other types of units that can basically be built within the structure of the main house. They just have a separate entrance. Those are considered accessory dwelling units as well. So there's a lot of flexibility there. So that maybe this is an obvious question, but what are sort of what are some of the benefits to having those as part of your home? So some of the benefits are um, if you so it's another so one of the things that I like to talk to people about is you know homes are an expense. You know people look at them as investments, and you know that's true when you sell it. But until you sell it, you're spending money on it. You're, you're paying property taxes, your mortgage, whatever repairs you have to make. And so my goal would be to figure out a way to create income using your home. So the accessory dwelling unit allows you to um, rent out either short term or long term or, you know, there may be a visiting a professor or nurse or someone that needs a, a place to stay that's more affordable than renting an entire apartment. So it gives you some flexibility income-wise. Um, it offers affordable or attainable housing for um, for folks who may not who may not be able to afford or want to pay a certain amount. You know where they can get in and actually live in this. You know the, live in the neighborhood of choice, their neighborhood of choice at a more attainable um, rate. Um, but there's also flexibility if you have, like for us, we had a smaller home. So that extra space would give us the opportunity if we wanted to blow off steam or have some privacy, we could go you know, to the ADU um, and take meetings or you know, my daughter would have, occasionally have sleepovers there. You know, so it offers a, you know, a lot of flexibility. Yeah, and and just to circle back to something you said a minute ago, which I think is really important, is it adds to the af- affordable housing supply in the sense that um, you know, house rental housing, especially nice rental housing, has just gotten really expensive here. And certainly, I know plenty of people over the years that have lived in central gardens in back houses because it was inexpensive and. Um, and those units allow you. And also, one thing you didn't mention is um, 
is the sort of, you know, aging in place movement. So bringing family members in, um, you know, aging family members who, you know, need a place to stay and you can be close to them or adult children who um, maybe aren't want to save up and buy a house, but they also don't want to live in their old high school bedroom. So there's all kinds of uses and benefits for those. Yeah. And I was just thinking the aging in place that I didn't say that and you said it and I'm glad you did. So yeah, that's, you know, one of the things that people could, should think about is, and I've had this conversation with others, is if you have a larger home and you're aging in place and you've got a single story backyard cottage that you love, they can move into that and then you can rent out your main house and that would help with your retirement income. So there's, there are quite a few things um, you, you can benefit greatly from having, you know, a back house. So let's talk about, um, the Malone Park Commons project, which is the project you've been working on for quite a while. And I think, you know, Jones Urban Development is potentially most known for. So tell tell me about that. So that Malone Park Commons is a development that will, when it's built out, will be comprised of um, what are termed now as missing middle housing or missing middle building types. <clears throat> Excuse me. So it's a mix of building types that haven't been legal to build for over 70 years now. They, they were, you know, a staple prior to World War II. If you like you said, if you go through Central Gardens or Midtown, you'll see single family homes and you'll see stacked duplexes, which was which is just a dwelling unit over another dwelling unit or fourplexes or small apartment buildings. And they all blend in and they all look lovely together, uh, which is what diversity does. And so Malone Park Commons will include uh, a cottage court that's already completed. That is uh, 11 units of small cottages that are surround the courtyard. We've got a 330 square foot cottage all the way up to um, 1100 square foot cottage. And are, they, we, are they attached or detached? They're detached. Okay. Yep, they're detached and they surround the little courtyard. And on the corners, we're building live-work buildings, which, you know, if you just think of a, an older neighborhood that has a corner commercial building, a corner brick building that used to have a, a, a drugstore or a butcher shop or something like that. So we're building live-work buildings on, on two of the corners, and they will include um, residential apartments above, and either apartments or um, retail or some sort of small business on the ground floors. Right now we have um, Muggin Coffee House signed up for one of our ground floor units, and we're so excited about that. That's amazing. Um, and it's, you know, we want to add amenities within walking distance within the neighborhood because we, you know, the old zoning always separated business from housing and you have to drive to get to where you, were, you know, needed to go. So our, our hope is to build walkability and build amenities within walking distance into these building types. And then the last building type that will be included in Malone Park Commons is a fourplex, which is basically a four unit um, small apartment building. The, they, will have, they will look like large homes. Um, and so as soon as, not as soon, so when we're done with those, we think we'll have the most diverse 
block of housing and building types in the city, if not in the region, because we also have on that block single family homes and single family homes with um, accessory dwelling units. So we will have every building type possible on that block. Yeah, it's, it's just amazing to me that, you know, for many years, that kind of housing diversity just wasn't allowed. And for again, for sort of people that don't know, it's it's we call it missing middle. It's because it's, you know, it's the middle in between single family homes and apartment, larger apartment buildings. There's a whole gap. And within that within that middle, there's you know, duplexes, quads smaller apartment buildings or, you know, stores with apartments on top is all kinds of things. And that's literally been missing from, you know, the new development landscape for decades. Um, even though, as you said, Andre, the, our older neighborhoods are full of all of those. I live in one of those neighborhoods and um, it's full of them and you don't think anything about it. Um, but it's, so it's crazy to think that it wasn't allowed for so long. Um but it wasn't. And now um, it's coming back and pr you're really leading that in Depan area. That sounds like. So So, how many units total, how many housing units total when you add all those up? So it will be a total of 35 housing units. Um, four of those can either be housing or, of course, small businesses. So but the total number of units is 35. And what I think the great thing about missing middle housing is it serves as a transition. It can serve as a great transition between single family homes and large apartment buildings, because that's exactly what we have in, in, on this, in this area right now in Uptown. So we've got our block that had single family homes and we had a large apartment building built across the street. And so this sort of gradual transition from single family fourplex cottage court apartment building. It makes a nice trend, nice smooth transition. Well, and is it, so, so um, tell me where is it? I mean, I should, I should know this. I've spent a lot of time in the uptown neighborhood, but is there, is it called Malone park because there's a park there? It was originally that block was called Malone park. Um, and if memory serves me, if, if there used to be a swimming pool and a park there uh, many years ago, and that was um, closed and it sat vacant for for many years. And so they, um, during the uptown revitalization, that block was redeveloped. And um, and and so, where is it? What street is this on? So the uh, development is Malone Park Commons is bound by North Main. Saffron's and North Second Streets, and that's just north of uh, A.W. Willis. Okay, so if you're just joining us, you're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM, and I'm talking to Andre Jones of Jones Urban Development, and we're talking about a project that his company developed called Malone Park Commons in the Uptown neighborhood, and then just generally about uh, the importance of having a diversity of housing types and sizes in neighborhoods. So this is another obvious question, but I want to ask it anyway. Um, what, what are the benefits to having a variety of housing types and sizes in a neighborhood? Well, the biggest um, benefit is having 
a diverse number of housing types from an affordability perspective, because you want so for the past 70 years, you know, mainly you would there were there have been single family homes built in subdivisions and obviously most of those were for, for ownership. You know, they basically excluded rental from these neighborhoods. And so the benefit of having missing middle housing is they can be the for sale or rental and the smaller units in multifamily buildings, the rents or even the cost to purchase if they were condos would be lower than, than or should be lower than the cost it would um, cost it would the, than the amount of money it would take to buy a single family home. So being able to rent a 300 square foot studio for a student or um, someone who's getting older and wants to downsize or, or, or a child who wants to live in the same neighborhood as their parents, but the housing uh, costs are too high. If they can rent in that same neighborhood, then you know that that makes um, that would make their lives much better. Obviously, they they would be able to get the housing of choice, get their housing of choice. I'm sorry. Okay, so I know even though the the you know the codes were changed to allow um, these kind of uh, housing units to be developed. There's a lot of other things that haven't changed yet that have caused challenges on your end. So talk a little bit about why it's so, why it has been difficult, harder than it should be, to develop these kind of housing units. Well, the, we we built single family for many years, and it was it was easy. Um, the code is, while the code is difficult, let me, I'll, let me say this. I don't know what word to use to describe the various codes that are used, um, to enforce uh, like building, the, like the building codes. Yeah. Um, but it's, let, let's just say it, they're difficult to follow <laughs> and there are a lot of them. So there's the international residential code for one and two family dwellings or duplexes. Then there's the International Building Code for larger buildings. There's the International Fire Code for fire protection. There's the National Fire Protection Association. So there are all these different codes. And I've never, I never thought that I would be reading as much about International Fire Code and these other codes as I, as, as I have. But the problem is that, um, well, there are several problems, but... The International Residential Code only um, is only enforced for duplexes. If you go to a triplex, then you're pushed to the International Building Code, which is a whole lot more stringent than the International Residential Code. And it makes it more difficult um, and more costly to build that triplex versus that duplex because of all the requirements that are added and, you know, I was asked to join the Building Code Advisory Board last summer. And, you know, one of the things we just discussed or one of the things we found out is the International Residential Code is only, only stops at two units because they just pay for testing for two units. 
So when we went to the when you go to the International Building Code and they add all of these uh, more stringent requirements, it's not because they tested a triplex and said, oh, this is much more dangerous than a duplex. It's just that they just didn't pay for testing. And so they just lumped the triplex in with a 150 unit apartment building, which is completely ridiculous. That is ridiculous. And 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 these are not local guidelines. They're this is how it works everywhere. Yeah, so this is the uh, International Construction Code. It's the organization. Uh, I think it's the International. I think it's ICC, whatever that is, stands for. But they are over, it's a national organization that um, basically writes and manages the International Residential Code, International Building Code, International Existing Building Codes. But the local... Uh, what's called the authority having jurisdiction, which is another jargon, the basically code enforcement. Right. They can apply their own local amendments to those codes. Okay. And has that been done? Has it been amended to make it easier to develop some of these projects? So I have to I have to um, thank uh, John Zena over at the Division of Planning and Development, Bobby Decker, who's uh, the building official for construction code enforcement, and the other folks who were on a part of the building code advisory board. Um, so, so last year we agreed to uh, draft the large home amendment, which would make it um, easier and more affordable to build three to six unit apartment buildings. And so there are some great uh, there were some great solutions that came out of that. The sprinkler, you know, sprinklers are required for three to six unit. Any 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 building above two units is required to have sprinklers, which is a tremendous expense, um, installation and operational, and it makes it difficult to you know low, you know have lower rents and lower building costs. So that's that was one of the bigger items that we agreed to exclude from three to six unit apartment buildings. Um, one of the other things that we agreed on was that design professionals wouldn't be needed for three to six unit buildings because architecture fees are expensive. They do a great job. But, you know, at, when you're dealing with something that small and you're trying to bring it to a neighborhood that's been disinvested and you want to be able to build that building um, and have it appraised for what it for what you need it to appraise for, for what it should cost. It's difficult when you add all those fees. So design professionals were not required for those types of buildings because they're not required for single family homes and they're no bigger. Um, and so we were able to get that large home amendment adopted by the city and county in um, 2022. But the state fire marshal has stepped in and blocked the uh, sprinkler exclusion so um, that's a huge portion of the cost when you're talking about building these types of buildings. So right now, the sprinkler exclusion has been scrapped. And I know that the city is working to negotiate with the state with the state on those items to see, you know, what what we you know, what can be scavenged from the from the large home amendment. And I know they're doing a they're working really hard on it. But when you add sprinklers and the. Um, sprinkler monitoring, fire along, all of that stuff that is very costly to a building that, you know, nobody really knows is is less inherently safe than a duplex, then it's, you know, it's kind of hard to 
deal yeah, with. Yeah, that just seems that seems crazy, especially since one of the, you know, one of the reasons to build more of this housing is because it's more affordable. And when you're layering on all these costs, um, that would be very important in a bigger in a bigger development. When you're laying on all these costs, then um, and I'm guessing it's just. And some at some point it just it becomes unprofitable if if there's so much of this it becomes just just not feasible to build these kind of projects. Yeah, when you when you're and and I'm not so this is one of the conversations we that it was a big conversation during our advisory meetings. Um, you know, we we were not trying to reduce life safety by eliminating some of these items, we were coming up with what we thought would be viable uh, solutions or alternatives to, let's say, sprinkler systems. So if we, re- you know, if we remove the sprinkler system, we would put a two-hour fire separation between each unit. You know, if it's a 2,000-square-foot building and you've got two hours to get out, you should be able, that should be enough time for you to be able to get out. So there, there, we were making alternative um uh, alternative, offering alternative solutions for those uh, items that we're trying to eliminate. Why do you ask also though about taxes? Isn't it true that the that the um, property taxes um, make are are very expensive on this missing middle housing and make it um, also add to you know making it less less feasible to develop. Yeah. So they so anything actually a duplex right now, I believe, is taxed as commercial. So anything above uh, a single family home is so single family homes are taxed as residential at 25 percent of the invest, uh, the assessed value. Um, anything above a single family home is taxed at uh, commercial property tax rates, which is 40 percent. So it's, um, you know, it's a huge difference. And it adds, when you add um, those fees, sprinkler monitoring, which is sprinkler permit inspections, all of the things that are required to maintain and have the equipment inspected and the, and the fees associated with, with those. The problem is you may be able to sell a product like that if someone's in, in disinvested neighborhoods, it's difficult regardless because you won't be able to get the building to appraise for what it costs to build. And when you add those types of fees, you know, it, it really just makes it harder. But when you're trying to build something to, to be able to rent, then, you know, all of those fees will have to be covered by rent. And the rent is raised to a point where people can't afford to rent those units. And so our hope was that we could use the large home amendment to reduce the cost of construction so we could provide affordable or attainable rents for people to move into our neighborhood. Well, I know that you mentioned John Zena earlier, and I know that he's that the property tax issue is also something that um, that the city and county are working to address at the state level because that just seems like an, another impediment to to these kind of projects. So you talked about um, 
you know, homes for sale. And I'm sort of just curious, not so much thinking about disinvestment, um, disinvested neighborhoods, but I'm just curious if you think there's going forward, if there's going to be a market for a sales market for these smaller homes. And um, because, you know, you think of, I mean, I still think people's mindsets, going back to what we were talking about earlier, is, you know, the bigger, the better. And, you know, when you're buying a house, buying as big a house as you can afford, do you think there's going to be a market for those kind of um, those kind of homes? Or you may not know, but I'm just curious as to your opinion about it. So we sold our last home, our last market home a couple of years ago, and it was a small, you know, based on the standard size of an American home, it was about 1,500 square feet and it had, but it also had a 300 square foot back house. So the, you know, the, the family that bought it seems to love it. It offered them a lot of flexibility. Um, so, I, so from a market perspective, I haven't had a lot of experience over the last couple of years and what's really, what's really wanted. But prior to that, you know, people, like you said, still seem to want bigger, the bigger, the better. And but I think that's I think that's more attributed. Well, I can't say it's more attributed. I think it's attributed to the fact that they are only being offered a certain type of housing. I think that if there were other. I think if these types of homes were built and available and people could go in and see the flexibility of the space, uh, how efficiently they're designed, there's not a lot of wasted space that would save them, you know, uh, mortgage and utilities and uh, repair, property taxes, everything. I think they would find, especially in walkable neighborhoods. So the thing that we haven't really talked about is smaller housing is, is great if it's in a neighborhood where the community is the focus. Um, you need to be able to get out of that small house and walk to amenities, walk to parks, walk to uh, bars or whatever your third place is. Third place is another jargon. You got to bring the bell. Right. Um, <laughs> a coffee shop or somewhere like that. So um, having a smaller home, but having a community that you love around it is what makes it. And so if there was, you know, if there were more opportunities like that, I think people would choose it. Well, I agree that the, that that it's a little bit of a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. People have not chosen those kind of products because it wasn't available. And so people say, well, there's no demand for it. Well, people haven't had it to people haven't had that option. So um, and you, you touched on this a little bit, but what are some of this the building strategies you use to make? I mean, I think about, you know, in, in Memphis, if you go into a, like a bungalow that's not hasn't really been redeveloped. You know, the rooms are really small. It feels cramped. But that, but what you're developing, I mean, those houses I've been, been entering uptown, they don't feel like that at all. So what are some of the what are some of the ways you you make these um, these homes feel spacious, even though from a square foot perspective, they're relatively small? So there are a lot of things. Um, so taller ceilings, so having at least nine, 10 foot ceilings where the standard would be eight in many cases. Um, having, uh, so in the cottages, we've got eight foot doors. 
instead of the standard six foot eight inch doors, we've got eight foot tall doors, which, you know, make a huge difference when it comes to making, um, making these rooms feel spacious. Uh, we've got tall windows, so we, we put tall, taller double hung windows in our buildings because you can open and close each sash. Um, and the windows are the highest of the eyes to the home, in our opinion. So we want to have windows that are attractive, that are functional. Um, and one of the things I like about the ones that we've been installing is they are, um, obviously they're energy efficient, but they're paintable and they match the trim of the rest of the house. So they're not just white vinyl. It's not something that you're going to see everywhere. You know, it's going to add, add some um, add some variation to the some variation to the elevation of the home. Um, one of the bigger things that we do is we have large front porches. So we have at least an eight by fourteen porch on each one, and we'll also have those on the fourplexes as well because the porch is your sort of semi-private space. So you've got your private space in the home. You've got your semi private space on the porch that gives you basically an outdoor living area. And that also allows you to, to speak to your neighbors as they walk by. You feel a little in the semi-private space, you're, you're a little, you're connected to your neighbor, but you still have that, that um, separation. And it also gives you the opportunity to move out into the neighborhood. Basically the front porch is your outdoor living area. And it gives you the connectivity to the rest of the community. Okay. And is the inside space, is it more sort of flex space instead of just, you know, here's the living room and then you go into the kitchen and that kind of thing? Yeah. So our, the cottages especially, and probably more the missing middle buildings that we'll build won't have like separate dining rooms, you know, things like that, that are like um, single use spaces. Uh, you mentioned flex space, which is basically what these what these buildings, um, the rooms in these buildings should be used for whatever you need them to be at the time that you need them. So Working from home. <laughs> right, working from an office or, you know, you want a, a dining, a formal dining room that you use twice a year for Thanksgiving and, and Christmas if you celebrate those holidays. Um, it, to me, is a waste of space. I mean, I know that people love them, but um, that square footage that if you don't have it, it'll save you money and it'll save you time. So what's, um, I know you're still deep into Malone Park Commons, but what's next? Like five years from now, what are you going to be working on? Do you, do you own other property in Uptown you're planning to develop or what's what's on your plate we do not own any other property in uptown but we are there's a lot of opportunity what what our focus will be on is um, building in the walkable neighborhoods around the core so there's south city there's uptown many neighborhoods in uptown there's the medical district so the medical district is embarking on a revitalization effort as well um, so we're looking forward to uh, participating w- with the with the medical district collaborative on their revitalization efforts. 
Is so that that goal, area? Is that that area north of Poplar yes. that they want to, um, you know, build some housing in? Yes, it is. And you know, my one of so I've I've told myself that we probably won't work on any projects that are um, that are more or longer than a twenty minute bike ride from where I live from uptown because I sold my car, and you know, I'm trying to. Um, I'm trying to show people and my and what is it uh, walk the talk that you know walkable neighborhoods are are viable here in Memphis and it's doable. We've got the Groove on Demand shuttle now that will you know give you that you can take around the medical district or downtown. Um, so you know walkability is key. And we've have a lot, we've got a lot of opportunity within that twenty minute bike ride. So if we can if we can make that happen, then we'll fill out the core around downtown, and Memphis will be, um, in my opinion, uh, a city of choice for many people. So along those lines, sort of last question. Um, so I've heard a number of people say, and I'm not just saying this to flatter you, but that they, you need to be replicated. I mean, on some level, um, you know, in terms of really pushing the envelope in terms of missile, mini missile housing, you're, you're, you know, you're doing it, you're the one doing it. And we need a lot more of, you know, more Jones urban developments um, because you can't do it all yourself. So what is needed? I mean, I'm familiar with, you know, there's an emerging developer program. I mean, I'm familiar with some of those things, but what's needed to have more um, Andre Joneses out there um, doing doing this work? So I'm glad you brought up the emerging developer program. That was um, that was an effort that Tommy Pacello spearheaded, um, and we had lots of lots of meetings and lots of seminars to bring folks in to try to talk about, you know, how to, how to become an emerging or how to be a developer and um, incremental development, which is basically building a lot at a time. So um, there's been a lot of effort, but there was a lot of effort behind that. And I believe now Regent Smart and the downtown Memphis commission are re-engaging those efforts. Um, But I think what we need, so there are several things we need. Uh, first of all, as an emerging developer, especially as a minority developer, having access to funds for pre-development to be able to uh, get your vision on paper um, is, is is a very expensive prospect. And so that's one of the things that you know I, I try to tell everybody I talk to is some sort of emerging developer fund. And I believe that you know the Downtown Memphis Commission and MMDC have pre-development grants to help. Uh, take care of things like that now. Um, and then obviously access to equity for funding your projects. But um, one of the things that I'm most interested in now is when I talked about the difficulty in navigating the codes, is we we need an advocate to help make sure that the codes are interpreted so that we're only building into these buildings what's required. Because, you know, when you go to uh, when you work with a contractor who's who's used to doing commercial work or even code enforcement, 
they're used to sort of a one size fits all. And, you know, if you've got a three unit building and they say, well, you need this because it's not in the international building code. Well, there could be some uh, exceptions in the code that say you don't need these things for a three unit, 1500 square foot building. So that's what we need to make sure that any small developer that comes along is able to is able to interpret the code or have someone help them interpret the code whereby they only build what's necessary. And that would save cost, that would make it easier for them to build. And so that's really, really important. Well, then the nonprofit developers who hope to develop this kind of thing would benefit from that also. Absolutely. Okay. There's a lot there to think about. So you've been listening to Memphis Metropolis and WYXR 91.7 FM. Um, I've been talking to Andre Jones of Jones Urban Development. We've been talking about developing a variety of housing types in the uptown neighborhood and elsewhere and the Malone Park Commons, which is their project. So Andre, thanks so much for coming on the show. Oh, you're very welcome. And I think you had asked about earlier or with, well, you considered asking about uh, Tommy Pacello's project. We did. We I did want to ask about that. So, because I know you were, he was going to do a development and you were going to be the builder, I think. Yeah. So one of the, you know, Tommy is, Tommy was the, um, if Tommy had an idea or felt like he had a good idea, or if he felt like you had a good idea, he took action on it. Yes, he did. whole emerging developer program was not just something that he was, uh, it wasn't just talk for him. And so he wanted to be involved. And so um, if any, you know, they had built, they had renovated this old fire station over in Uptown and there was a vacant lot across the street and Tommy uh, and his dad, they were like, well, we want, to have an example of, you know, what it what it what it means to be an emerging developer, what it means to build missing middle housing, and I think we should do it. You know, he thought they should do it there, and so the old firehouse was station number the original station number six. So this development was they called it the station number six development, and it's really beautiful. What what what. What happened was the um, there are three we built three cottages and a live work building at the corner of Third and Looney right across the street from the old firehouse. While it didn't so it wasn't a disruptor from the code perspective because they didn't go over two units per building. It's still considered a duplex to live work building. Um, it they were still it was still a concept that was not that hadn't been built in a long time. Yeah, I didn't realize that project had been completed. I'm sorry about that. I guess I just missed that. Oh yeah, it's 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 it. We we completed it in 2020, and it it completely transformed that corner. I mean, it's a beautiful corner with the live work building at the corner of Third and Looney, and three cottages behind it. And um, it, I don't, I don't, I don't think it could have turned out any better. And I think it proved the point that on such a small piece of property or what other people consider to be a small piece of property, you can build beautiful housing, um, beautiful, dense housing 
um, and not detract from the neighborhood. And so that was Tommy's goal. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I think that was achieved. And we were able to take some of those, some of what we learned from there, my brother and I, to build Malone Park Commons. Okay. Yeah. Tommy was a visionary and there's just been some publicity recently in the media because um, a fellowship has been established in his name um, on kind of on the occasion of the two year anniversary of his death. So he was a visionary on so many levels. I'm glad that project um, got to be realized. And I think it was, you know, the his vision was, you know, Emerging developers, people who live in their neighborhoods should be able to build to fill the gaps in their neighborhoods. Tommy wanted to prove it, um, and that passed along to us. We're proving that we could build and fill in the gaps in a neighborhood that we live in, and hopefully that will spread. You know, that was his whole vision. Yep, it was. This is Will Goodwin, co-founder at Crosstown Brewing Company. Just like WYXR, Crosstown Brewing supports Memphis music and our neighbors who use their talents to make it. Our beers can be found at our 3,000 square foot tap room right here at the Crosstown Concourse and at your favorite bars, restaurants, and stores throughout Tennessee, Mississippi, and Eastern Arkansas. Enjoy. listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis airs every Monday at 1, so please tune in again next week. You can listen to past programs on our program page at wyxr.org or on memphismetropolis.com. You can also follow us and send feedback on social media. Now, stay tuned for Memphis Undercover with Nancy.